Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the past eight years, geneticists have figured out how to edit humanity's genetic code. They've discovered that bacteria can record, hunt, and neutralize the DNA of viruses using what scientists call clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, or CRISPR for short. Geneticists have now figured out how to harness this capability to edit genetic codes of other organisms in a controlled and reliable fashion. It sure sounds like the stuff of science fiction finally coming true. We are approaching the ability to cure horrible genetic diseases and to genetically engineer plants and livestock to improve food supplies. But we are also approaching the question of how far we should allow this technology to go. Do we allow these geneticists to edit the human genome? Or would that be a step too far? And if we do begin editing humanity's very code itself, do we stop at preventing genetic diseases? Or do we begin to augment humanity with enhanced intelligence or extended lifespans? I'll be discussing these and many more questions today with Kevin Davis. Kevin is the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and the founding editor of Nature Genetics. He's also the author of several books, including Editing Humanity, the CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing, which will be out the first week of October. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Your book's title is about the CRISPR revolution, but I don't hear about this technology as much as I do about, say, artificial intelligence, for example. So how far along are we in this revolution? Um, So CRISPR really has only been around as a technology for editing DNA, for editing genomes, since 2012, 2013, that's when a series of papers, seminal papers, uh, were published in uh, the leading journal Science um, from teams in uh, Berkeley and uh, Europe and the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that really put in the hands of researchers a tool uh, that is widely available, easy to use, requires no expensive equipment, and puts every researcher the ability to edit the DNA of any organism they wish, from bacteria and viruses to plants to animal models to pigs to extinct animals like the woolly mammoth to human beings. And you asked about the impact. Well, we're already seeing the impact in engineering uh, crops and foods to make them uh, more drought resistant, more uh, improved nutrition. Uh, But the area that I focus most on in the book, Editing Humanity, is about its medical potential. This is the next uh, version of gene therapy, where we're not just adding a healthy gene to compensate for a broken gene or replace a broken gene. We're actually going into cells and using uh, this molecular scissors uh, fixing, stitching in the, the appropriate or correct gene sequence to hopefully restore uh, health to patients with cancer, with sickle cell disease, and a growing list of other disorders. It's an incredibly exciting time. So, uh, you know, some of the diseases you just pointed out, are the, again, sort of how far along 
are we to actually curing things? I, I don't know if I see a lot of this, this disease, that some disease, which has been a plague you know, on humanity, that disease has now been cured and that disease you're, you're has now been cured. Yes, you're, you're correct. But I think you have to give everyone just a little bit of a break because the field is still so new. Um, right. There's no miracle cure. Uh, even CRISPR isn't quite that. I'm not, so I'm not suggesting that. Um, but given that clinical trials usually take uh, years and years uh, to proceed, the fact that from less than eight years after this technology was first published to actually seeing companies now with billion dollar valuations launching clinical trials using CRISPR as a gene editing tool to treat, if not cure, sickle cell disease is, it's breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking. I hesitate though to use the the C word, the cure word, because I think even the most ardent CRISPR supporter is going to be very reluctant to breathe that word until all the evidence is in. Um, but we already are seeing, particularly in sickle cell disease, which is a, you know, a really debilitating, painful, underfunded, neglected disease that affects millions of people around the world and, and thousands of patients in the United States. Um, the fact that we're seeing volunteers with the disease uh, put themselves out there to take this, this therapy and to uh, seeing great progress in the first nine to 12 months of receiving their gene therapy, that's, that's, it's breathtakingly wonderful news. Do you think the potential of CRISPR may be greater than that of AI, even if we don't hear as much about CRISPR? If people 100 years from now, for instance, look back to today, will they look at this as the beginning of the AI era or the CRISPR era? Yeah, I, it's, it's, uh, I don't profess to be an expert on AI, AI, and I think it's somewhat of an apples and oranges uh, debate. But uh, while the, the CRISPR revolution, and the reason I, I use that word and don't feel um, ashamed in, in calling it a revolution, is that this is a fundamental technology. This is the, the word processor for DNA. Uh, and so while the medical applications and our, the ability to rewrite the genetic code of human beings is, is wonderfully exciting, and as a human geneticist myself, uh, by training, that's the area I spend most of the time on uh, discussing in the book, um, there are really other exciting applications. I mentioned agricultural biotechnology. So there are new companies coming up, um, including companies like Calixt and Pairwise Plants that are engineering plants um, because we've got to feed the planet. Our, our, our population is growing. Uh, unless we do something to improve the robustness and the nutrition value of crops and staples, uh, we're going to be in trouble. Um, other areas, including other, other spheres of medicine. So one of the companies launched by George Church, uh, an outsized figure in genetics and a prominent figure in the book, is called eGenesis. They're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They are engineering the DNA of pigs not to make crispy a bacon, but to provide a safe uh, vehicle for organ transplantation. Pigs and humans physiologically, believe it or not, are incredibly similar. And if we could render pig organs safe from some of the hidden sequences in their DNA, uh, they would in principle be a wonderfully uh, abundant source of uh, organ transplants. And so eGenesis has been uh, created to make the pig genome safe to really begin to exploit that possibility. Now, I'm going to spend some time in our conversation, uh, I wouldn't say scaring people, but addressing maybe fears people have. So I want to make sure that before we get to that, 
people have sort of a fuller, a full understanding of the potential here, yeah. um, which I, which I, 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 I agree is vast. What would you say that you have a more, that you think is more likely than not to be possible in 10 years and then let's say 20 years down the road? Well, I think the reason that people are so excited about CRISPR, just to reinforce a point I made earlier, is that labs around the world um, are using this. South America, Southeast Asia, Africa, CRISPR is a is is a democratizing technology. Other for other branches of genetics, like DNA sequencing or the Human Genome Project, required really well funded groups with art warehouses full of uh, a high high end machinery to crank out the first human genome, for example. CRISPR can be done literally by a high schooler. Uh, with an internet connection, you uh, you you have the tools at your in a test tube at your disposal. Um, the question then is, which piece of DNA do you want to edit? And you can there are all kinds of software programs online where you can type in the gene or the sequence that you're interested in targeting, and order the uh, the, the the primers, the, uh, the the reagents that you need to begin and do those experiments. So that's exciting. And I would hope and think that in ten years' time. Uh, we're going to see some of this true medical potential where there are trials beginning for hereditary blindness. There's going to be liver diseases, heart disease. Um, a company that recently launched called Verve Therapeutics will be applying CRISPR to tackle heart disease. So the list of diseases, and we're not just talking ultra rare, obscure genetic diseases, we're talking sickle cell disease, heart disease, and maybe in a few years, diabetes, maybe eventually uh, mental illness in some form. So this is amazingly exciting. But then you also asked about the sort of the, the scary side, right? The, the well, dangerous yeah, let, let me, side. Let me, let me just read a sentence yeah. from the book, um, yeah. which, which by the way you wrote it, I sense you wrote with a sense of enthusiasm, but I can see people also taking it the other way. You wrote, um, it allows scientists and even non-scientists to rewrite the genetic code as easy as I can change money to honey or <laughs> gnome to genome on my computer. Now, I think yeah. that may give a sense of the editing aspect of it, but some people would say, well, the democratization of a technology that you say is amazingly powerful yeah. also seems like it could be pretty scary. Uh, well, will we be gene, you know, we, can we create terrible diseases? Could we, could we alter people, you know, permanently in ways that would actually affect the effect Yes. You know, the future of humanity. And so, I mean, I'm sure yes. you, I'm sure you, anyone else who's watched a lot of science fiction could spit out some pretty scary scenarios. Well, that's, and that's why I think the, the book is, um, I hope will interest uh, a, a wide readership because it really shows, I, I love the way you frame that question. It really shows how science fiction is becoming science fact. And you, I think you brought up two really great um, uh, examples. Uh, I uh, One is um, about designer diseases, if I can use that term. Um, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that in the book because look where we are. We're dealing with the, the ravages of a pandemic um, that, uh, despite what some may believe, arose in nature. Um, uh, the interconnectedness of our world means that these uh, viruses, uh, these viral kind of crossover events, are more and more likely to happen. We had all kinds of warning signs about the, this pandemic, um, maybe not this particular virus, but we knew that this was going to happen years and years before uh, it actually struck. 
Um, and uh, but that's where we are. So I, you know, there have been fears for a decade or two now about the potential of scientists, if they wished, for nefarious purposes, to synthesize or resynthesize uh, the smallpox uh, genome or something like that. So that risk is always with us, and CRISPR is. Uh, makes potentially makes that a little bit easier but i think given where we are uh, i'm not i'm not overly concerned that some some rogue agent or country is is in a lab somewhere trying to recreate um smallpox but we could discuss that but i do want to quickly talk about the other um element that you mentioned about um and editing permanent changes into the the human genome that is where i spent a lot of time in the third part of the third of the part of the book um uh, because I was in the front row in Hong Kong at a conference in 2018 when a, sci a Chinese scientist named He Jiankui made the shocking announcement um, that he had um, edited the DNA of two babies that had been born a few weeks earlier uh, named Lulu and Nana. And the reason this was so significant and literally headline news around the world is that he had edited the DNA of human embryos so every edit that he had introduced into that DNA had grown and multiplied and replicated as the embryo grew into the babies that were born nine months later. And so those babies, if and when they have children, will pass on the, that edited gene. And that was a red line that 99.9% .9 of the world's citizens and the world's scientists did not think should be crossed for many reasons, ethical concerns, medical concerns, safety concerns, and technology concerns. We just don't know yet enough about CRISPR because the technology is still so young to be able to say hand on heart that it is 100% safe and 100% accurate. I think we'll get there soon, but we're not there yet. We don't completely understand how to edit the DNA of a human embryo, even if we really, really wanted to, even if we felt that we had a, a, a couple with a severe genetic disease that had no other options to have a biologically related child. So that episode, spent, I spent several chapters discussing it and looking at it at different angles, um, the politics, the ethics, um, and, and where we go from here. And um, I hope people will look at the book for that reason. I, I do want to get back to that in just a moment, but you had mentioned, yeah. you know, what we know and don't know. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a uh, piece I uh, just from June, um, uh, an article, and it says three new studies show unwarranted, I'm sorry, three new studies show unwanted changes in human uh, embryo genome after CRISPR uh, yes. editing. Yes. Um, is there, is there any concern, do you have any concern that this will end up being found to be just too dangerous and um, technology will stop? Well, it's it's not it's not. I don't think it's going to be. It's dangerous to apply now, but that's why scientists are doing these experiments under ethically and regulatory uh, approved conditions with non-viable human embryos to understand how embryos develop. These sorts of experiments can tell us many things that maybe have nothing to do with gene editing. You have to remember we're using CRISPR as a tool to understand the biology of human development at its earliest stage so that we can, for example, prevent miscarriages or make IVF completely, you know, as safe as can possibly be. Um, but the other ramifications of the three studies that you just um, cited are that it gives us pause. It tells the scientific community, 
even if you were thinking about following in the footsteps of the Chinese scientist uh, who did these uh, notorious experiments two years ago and who incidentally is now in jail in a Chinese prison serving a three-year prison sentence, um, please stop. Do not go, do not pass go because as those studies from the three leading human embryo genetics labs in the UK and the US showed, um, we do not completely understand how when you try to do a gene editing experiment in a one day old human embryo, we can't predict exactly what is going to happen. Those studies found a variety of other DNA rearrangements. And so no responsible scientist could, e could even look somebody in the eye and say, we know how to do this. It's gonna take probably several years just to understand the biology, the genetics. Uh, and once we reach that point, which I'm sure we will, uh, whether it's using CRISPR or some other form of gene editing technology, because they're always iterating and improving that technology, then I think we'll be one step closer to deciding, do we want to offer gene editing for uh, rare couples who have no other uh, option to have a biologically related child? So that's where we, pretty much where we stand at the moment. We've mostly been talking about fixing problems with this kind of gene therapy, but what about enhancement? It seems highly unlikely we're just going to stop at therapy, right? I'm sure when a lot of people hear about that story in China, they figure that this is actually the Chinese government experimenting to create a new race of hyper-intelligent super people, and that this will lead to some sort of CRISPR arms race that the U.S. will have to join in eventually. So could you speak to the debate around genetic enhancement? Well, let me let me um, puncture uh, somebody's balloon <laughs> right away because if if uh, anybody was thinking that what the Chinese scientist who's now languishing in a Chinese prison uh, was trying to do was increase the intelligence of those babies, um, they are they're flat out wrong. Um, that doesn't mean what he was trying to do was appropriate or um, ethically sound or even medically sound. Very briefly, he was trying to he was taking recruiting couples for his trial, who, where one of the parents uh, had HIV. HIV is still a rampant disease in China, in parts of China, and there's a huge social stigma to having HIV. So there's a, he, he felt there was a medical need because if he could get, uh, engineer these babies to be essentially genetically immune to developing HIV and having it passed on from their, from their father, uh, then uh, he would be setting the stage for treatment for hundreds of thousands of other Chinese couples in the same boat. Um, it, was a, it was a fanciful, it was a naive um, notion. Um, he didn't talk to enough people, and if he did talk to them, he didn't listen. Um, and as we've probed and tried to understand what his motivations were, it seems that he was really dreaming of, he was 34 years old when he did these experiments. He was dreaming of becoming not only the next Nobel laureate, but the next, uh, the next hero, not only for Chinese science, but almost for world science, someone who would go down as a hero like uh, Louis Pasteur or mm -hmm. um, uh, um, Rob, uh, Bob Edwards, the, uh, the British uh, scientist who helped develop IVF. We now have 5 million IVF babies since the birth of Louise Brown in 1978. And that was sort of the, the that was who uh, Her Jiankui was trying to emulate. Um, briefly, elements of trying to enhance uh, individuals or huge groups of individuals to enhance intelligence are, at least based on our current understanding of science and genetics, are 
just doomed to fail. There is no on-off switch for intelligence. Um, if you were trying to understand and modulate the intelligence of a of a of a human being, um, and, and I say this in the most theoretical, abstract sense, you would have to potentially tweak the genes of hundreds, if not thousands, of genes. We just don't know. We just wouldn't know where to begin to start. Um, so I'm really not at all uh, concerned by that. Um, and a report that just came out from the National Academy of Science has really charted for people who want to explore genome editing in human embryos to, to, to engineer changes that would be then inherited and passed on through generations. They have charted a very narrow course purely for serious medical conditions in really very rare circumstances. So um, uh, the scientific community, I think, has come down pretty hard on that. Could this extend lifespans in some fashion uh, so that we're all living to be 150? Well, it's a lot of, uh, at the moment, I would say no. Uh, but I, I am aware that there are, there are many companies and many uh, philanthropists who are very interested in understanding and exploring the genetics of, um, uh, of extended lifespan. Um, I'm not aware of any you know, magic gene that says, obviously, if you want to extend lifespan, one thing you want to do is to um, uh, remove the risks of, of sort of falling off the, falling off the wagon, so to speak, uh, because you succumb to Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or cancer. So um, if one way to answer your question is, if gene editing uh, using not not now editing embryos, but if the if the whole repertoire of gene editing can provide us ways where that we can tackle um, genetic diseases, but perhaps eventually uh, looking at things like Alzheimer's disease um, or certain types of cancer, then yes, genome editing will absolutely help us. Right. Well, we we want we want to make we want to make sure we want not just to you know live to one hundred and fifty, but have that and have that last sixty years be racked with illness. We, 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 I guess we would prefer to have, you know, a healthier, you know, within the current lifespan, make that healthier and then obviously add on healthy years. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, that, that but, certainly would seem to be, you know, I, I certainly can imagine talking about philanthropy, that there'd be plenty of 60 something billionaires right now thinking about, you know, projects they could fund. Well, and we already see that in some, to some degree, we already see that with stem cells. So do you remember you know, maybe 20 years ago when um, scientists made big discoveries in stem cells and we had the whole debate when, when George Bush took office um, about uh, whether federal funds should be used to, to engineer new stem cells because of the fear that it created the destruction of, uh, uh, of promoted the destruction of embryos. Um, and a lot of uh, stem cell clinics, offshore clinics were set up. A lot of, uh, I know some philanthropists who've funded some of these themselves because pretty much as you suggested, they want to give themselves the secret of everlasting life almost and live to 120 playing 10, you know, a couple of sets of tennis every day. Um, I, I'm as skeptical about that as I am about uh, genome editing, providing these sorts of magical, uh, fantastical, um, uh, theories, but you know, science. I mean, I write. I've written a book about a revolution in science technology, and the amazing thing about this field, our field, is that you can never predict where the technology is going to go. And um, I, I can sort of, you know, wax and wane about how this is the greatest technology since sliced bread. And uh, five years from now, somebody may well come up with uh, something that makes CRISPR look quaint and 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 outdated. Um, you know, I, you know, I, we, I started off talking about AI and take, and I understand what's kind of an apples and oranges comparison, 
But yeah. one thing I've more broadly, I've, you know, I, I, I think a lot about is sort of these kind of technological backlashes, whether you call them Luddite backlashes. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I've thought a lot about that as far as the pushback against, you know, technologies that automate jobs. Are you concerned about a backlash against this technology or, or, or similar technologies that, that start, you know, tinkering? I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. Yeah. I'll give you two anecdotes. One, one I was in, in Hong Kong, uh, in the, in the midst of the media frenzy that was the appearance by the Chinese scientist, I overheard, um, a prominent, uh, American scientist say, uh, he looked pale and ashen faced. And he said, um, this is an existential threat for the gene editing community. He was really scared that the backlash from this rogue Chinese scientist trying to edit embryos of uh, a couple of Chinese, uh, who became a couple of Chinese babies, um, would have a perilous knock-on uh, effect um, that would hamper perfectly appropriate efforts to treat patients with muscular dystrophy or Huntington's disease or Alzheimer's disease, purely you know, treating the patient in a form of gene therapy. That thankfully hasn't happened. And I think we've seen enough 60 Minutes episodes and enough um, uh, magazine cover stories and documentaries, a wonderful documentary called Human Nature that I urge people to, to look and, and go out and watch, um, that I think shows you how this is a responsible, a new, a new uh, responsible technology in the medical, uh, the medical arsenal. But we are seeing some pushback in among regulatory agencies, for example, when it comes to regulating uh, plants. I mean, uh, you know, there's in, in some countries, there's fierce opposition to genetically modified foods. And um, in, uh, in Europe in particular, uh, the regulators have said that CRISPR, even though it's the most precise form of gene editing, where we know exactly, we're like a surgeon knowing exactly what we're doing, uh, they've said that that's no better than genetically modified foods where you stick in a foreign gene. And so many people, many are, are very upset by the current stance of, of European regulators. Um, thankfully, things seem a little bit more enlightened here. Why would we uh, put our heads in the sand and ban a technology where we can, like a molecular scalpel, go in and fix the single uh, letter of DNA that is potentially rendering um, a, a, you know, a corn or something uh, uh, susceptible to, to a parasite or a fungus? Um, we've got to use technology to our advantage um, and trust the science. And uh, I hope we can continue to do that. Um, and sort of wrap up here, uh, what and uh, kind of like a pol I guess kind of a policy question. What else would you do? You, what does the government need need to do? You mentioned sort of regulation. You know, not quash this technology with regulation, but is this a technology that needs uh, more government funding? There's a lot more research stuff to be done, so it's it still needs sort of that basic research to be done and funded. Uh, funded yeah. at the public level, uh, and, and also, and to what degree is this a result uh, of, of uh, that kind of public funding? Yes. Oh, fantastic! It's a great note to end on. Um, it's a point I tried to bring out in the early stages of the book. This technology arose from the study of a handful of obscure microbiologists in far-flung places studying some of the most obscure questions you could possibly imagine: bacterial immunity to viruses most people would scratch their heads and say you know please what i don't care about that why why would i possibly care about how bacteria um arm themselves to fend off viruses but that was the origin of 
the basic fundamental biology investigator-driven research funded by organizations like NIH that led to this um, spectacular breakthrough where we took these sort of fundamental understandings of how bacteria work and then use them to our advantage. We did this 30 years ago with the, with the birth of the biotech industry. We took another family of enzymes in bacteria and said, these have fantastic properties for manipulating DNA. We can use them to give rise to recombinant DNA. And that was the birth of genetic engineering. So one lesson from this book and from this story is we have to continue to impress upon governments around the world to fund basic research. Applied research is great. Big biology projects like the Human Genome Project are great, but there's no substitute for smart, driven investigators following their heart, following their passion, uh, because you, you just cannot predict the kinds of discoveries that they're going to make. My guest today has been Kevin Davis, author of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing. Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.